they were talking about this very subject and they were saying like yeah they're all in their like mid late 30s and some of them have been married for for quite a while and they were like you know it's weird like I, i've heard this like divorce statistic is 50 percent 50 percent of marriages and divorce how come none of us are divorced and my friend who who knows some of these statistics and he was like that's because we're all like super educated educated people like very rarely yeah. get divorced um yeah and you know we can we can yeah go into the reasons for some for for why that might be but the, i think those those two things are important to keep in mind so yeah this the divorce rate appears to have have diminished considerably and then also yeah. uh to keep in mind your uh individual context and situation rather than yeah. just thinking like oh a divorce rate 50% flip a coin you might get divorced that's that's yeah. that's not that may not be true for your specific situation right Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Hafiz, and welcome back to another amazing conversation. And I had to bring back one of my favorite young scholars of today's generation, someone whose articles, whose insight really inspires me to think deeply about the matters going in during these times. Last time we brought him on the show, he was finishing up his PhD, and my guy officially finished his PhD from Cambridge University. So welcome back to the show. The one, the only, the brilliant Rob Henderson. <laughs> Thanks, Afis. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Rob, are you officially Dr. Henderson? Is that is that is that is that your new title nowadays? Yeah, that's that's right. Finished up the PhD. So I'm officially a fake doctor, you know, PhD. <laughs> so yeah, man, feels good. Feels good to finally uh, reach that that you know cross that finishing line. So, Rob, I got a, I got a real question for you, man. In order for me to get the respect that you get in the academic community, do I have to go to school? Uh, not necessarily. I think it helps. I mean, it all depends on what your you know, your goals are, what you're optimizing for. You know, if you want to become a professor, be an academic, write scholarly papers, that kind of thing, then, yeah, you'll have to. I mean, more than likely, you'll have to get a Ph.D., but if you want to sort of, you know, receive the attention of scholarly types of people, um, you can just write a book or, you know, write a series of interesting articles and, in, you know, well-regarded outlets or something like that. Or, you know, have a podcast with interesting guests and bring people on and talk about cool ideas. You'll catch their attention that way, too. Yeah. Because I've been, I've been kicking that idea around for quite a long time. Um, I have been eyeing the the bus school of psychology at, at UT that you're obviously familiar with, and oh, yeah. but I'm not gonna lie to you, Rob. I don't like school. <laughs> it's funny because yeah. I was a teacher for like five years of my life, but okay. man, to go back to school for for I think PhD in America seven years. It can be up to seven. Yeah, yeah. So so in the U.S., the PhD programs are a little longer. They usually yeah five, six, sometimes seven years. I mean, in the UK, they're they're usually shorter, three, four years typically. Uh, but I'm with you, man. I, I hated school growing up. But one thing that I like about the PhD process is that you have uh, way more flexibility about what you do. Like you don't have to go to classes, really. I mean, it is it's sort of make or break on your own, right? Like you're not going to class trying to get a, an A in your class and impressing your teachers or something. It's really about you know, writing interesting uh, papers, getting uh, research done, you know, cranking out uh, papers, that kind of thing. So it's just a different, it's a different way of studying that for me, it, it suits my interests more. That's sort of self-taught, self-driven, 
you know, doing a lot of reading, reading a lot of papers, writing things down, going to meetings, and you know, doing statistical analysis and that kind of stuff too is is important for psychology research. But generally, uh, for me, it, it, it suits my temperament more because I, I you know, it's funny because I was in the military and I, I, but I don't like being told what to do. So for me, it was like, you know, it was a perfect, it was a perfect fit for my uh, temperament, I think. But, you know, again, it, it depends. Like, I, I get these questions a lot from people, you know, uh, 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 people who are finishing up their undergrad will email me, hey, should I do a PhD in psychology? I really like, uh, you know, David Buss's stuff or Stephen Pinker or Jordan Peterson, you know, these big time psychologists, these guys really interesting ideas and I want to continue on that track. But again, like if you if you want to be a professor, be an academic and live that kind of, you know, scholarly life, then then yeah, that's it's probably a good decision. Although even then it's so hard to get a job in, in the academic career field. But um but if you just want to like indulge your interests and your curiosities and just learn more about the world, uh I actually think what you're doing may be a better way to do that in that you can talk to anyone in the world on your podcast you can have you know all these big time psychologists and social scientists and interesting people on and sort of glean the best of their ideas and their knowledge in that way so again yeah it all it all sort of depends what you want right yeah no that makes that makes perfect sense because you know i think for me one of the biggest things that I've loved so much about you and your work is is i think there's like a universal respect when you're in when you're in, you know an, an academic I think sometimes like being a podcaster, you're more viewed as like, uh, what's that word? Like a person who's gathering data and synthesizing it versus the person who's creating the actual information. Right. And so to me, I, you know, I, I've kicked this, kicked these ideas around. I, I know for me, I wouldn't want to live in Austin. So, so that, that, that plays a little, a little mm -hmm. bit of a factor into can it. Can I ask but, why? Um, can I ask why? Why, not, why don't you want to live in Austin? Um, they're weird. <laughs> okay. They're, they're right. man. The people, the people there are different. Man, Austin gives me right. San Fran vibes, and you know, I'm, yeah. I'm more of a, I'm more of a Dallas guy, if you know what I mean, than a San right. Fran guy. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I've been to both. Uh, no, I, I like both, but they're definitely very different places. Uh, yeah, that makes sense, man. Like, I, I have friends who do podcasting and who do, uh, you know, out, like outside of the the academic world, who are interested in ideas and that you know they they express this I, these kind of thoughts to me too where it's just um you know there is an automatic sort of what credibility or something if you you know work in a university or you're going along that that sort of credentialed academic path um but i think that things are changing now and more and more people are becoming aware of the importance of podcasts and youtube channels and uh, and, and, you know, popular, popular books and blogs, sub stacks, like all of these things where ideas are being disseminated now. I mean, the thing is that like the academic world, it's kind of, I, I'm finished my PhD, so I guess I can talk a little bit of, a little bit of trash about it, but it's, it's so like boring, the writing, man. Like if you write yeah. an academic paper, it's just like the, like it's, it's mind numbing to try to impress yeah. because the whole process of like academic, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but like, you know, you're writing an academic paper, you do some studies, you write them up and then you have to send them off to a journal. And then usually you have two or more reviewers who are evaluating it and you're trying to like head off, you know, d defend your ideas because you know what they're going to say. And it's very tedious. The writing is very dry. Um, and this is why I like writing for Substack and I write for, you know, other pop popular um, uh, outlets as well. Uh, reaching a general curious educated audience people who are just interested in ideas who aren't trying to like you know translate it into some academic weird language that only a handful of people in like the ivory tower can understand 
Uh, so to me, that's like way more interesting and fun is like, you know, hey, I, I found this interesting thing. Like, I'm, I'm the kind of person who will read these dry, dull texts and, and try to translate it into something that a normal pe person would be interested in and can understand. Uh, but within the academic world that it's just like a bunch of nerds trying to impress each other. And yeah. it's part of the reason why I'm actually not like that interested in continuing on on that path. Yeah, now I agree with you. I think to me, the part that I really value about the academic community is the writing discipline. And mm. I don't think people really understand like the best communicators that I found are also some of the best writers. Because when you're writing out your ideas, I feel like you're able, you're better able to systematize them. You're better able to articulate them, and you're better able to have um, objective information to be able to be backed up with credible sources. And and we're gonna get into a whole bunch of topics today. I'm excited about hearing your opinion about it. But one of the biggest things I've seen, me and my me and my friend of Francis, um, we talk about this all the time with the with the deconstruction of modern institutions, right? So like modernism taught us that the institutions, science and reason and rationale will take us to utopia. World War II happened. It was like, oh my gosh, it almost brought us to destruction, right? Then you entered into, you know, postmodernism. Um, and, and in postmodernism, what you see is this rise of neo-Marxist ideologies. I'm, I'm going to bore you with it, facts. <laughs> but, you know, you see a rise in the postmodern ideologies. And one of the biggest things is a question of institutions, right? So, we, like, these institutions, capitalism, um, democracy, you know, the patriarchy, whatever it may be, marriage, have been under attack under postmodernism. And so what I've seen is that also higher learning and academia has been under attack as well, and rightfully so, right? And so now the, now the credibility and, and, the, and we question why did we do things this way for so long? And, and, and now is it producing healthy or unhealthy results? But what I've seen, I think you looking at it from the academic side has a really great perspective. But what I've seen from the layman side is that now there's a bunch of people online who think they're Rob Henderson. You know, there's a bunch of people online because they have Google and because they can search something because they can go on a website that may or may not be credible, most likely it's not, and put a bunch of ideas together, these individuals now believe that they are true social scientists in the way that a Rob Henderson, who actually really studied the craft diligently, a guy like a Godside, you know, um, Dr. Peterson, Stephen Pinker, at XYZ, Dr. David Buss, who study the craft diligently, has a robust insight and awareness. And so I've seen the rise of these pseudo um, social scientists in today's world communicating these ideas and some of their studies and their and their ideologies that are false and people who are in the academic community such as yourself don't ever take them seriously but they easily confuse and trick the layman that's a good point Hafiz you know I I, I read an article uh, a couple of months ago in the uh, the Washington Post and it was about uh, like mental health influencers on TikTok, and these people who did not have any you know professional credentialed expertise in psychology or clinical you know mental health issues, anything like that. Uh, but they were you know uh, uh, sort of skimming articles and taking you know piece a piece from this article here and something there and making these very. Uh, quick and clever 15 second TikTok videos and accruing hundreds of thousands or in some cases like million plus followers on TikTok 
and people are listening to them and taking them seriously and it's just just by dint of the fact oh this person has 500,000 followers therefore they must know what they're talking about and I think there is something alarming about that. I mean, that was sort of the point of this article is that, like, you know, you have, like, Zoomers and kids at home who are, like, maybe they're feeling anxious or depressed or something. And instead of, you know, trying to see a professional, someone who, you know, studied for years and, and tried to, you know, trying to understand the human mind and the human condition and so forth, instead, they're just going to TikTok and watch a few 15-second clips of someone who really may not completely understand the ideas they're trying to express. And, yeah, they can put together a flashy, you know, quick clip. But... Yeah, that is something uh, that I think not many academics are aware of. I think a younger generation, like people around my age or a little bit younger are becoming aware of this. I actually have some psychologist friends around you know my age who are on TikTok now and are actually trying to like take real ideas and real psychology and bring them to bring them to people. But the older like establishment academics have no idea like what's going on out there. They don't know what TikTok is. They don't like they barely they barely know what YouTube is in some cases. And they don't really understand that like, yeah, there's there's a whole there's a whole world out there. I mean, they're sort of up up to date on like the fake news phenomenon and misinformation and stuff, but they don't I don't think they get the extent to which there are people who are pretending to be experts and they really don't know what they're talking about and it, it could potentially be harmful to, to young people who are who are seeking answers. And I, yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is something I think we should be yeah, paying more attention to for sure. And yeah, for me, like when I'm evaluating someone's ideas, I definitely don't put like all of my all of the weight on, you know, did they go to did they go to school? Which school did they go to? Which degrees? I mean, it, it, but it definitely helps, right? Like it, de it confers some amount of credibility to someone uh, but which isn't to say that like everyone who has a degree is smart. Like I you know plenty of people with PhDs who are really dumb, but it is like an indicator that maybe they, they at least spend some time thinking about it seriously. Whereas some random person on the internet, um, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a good point. And, and to me, one of the things that I've noticed is that, like you said, in the old guard, the crit, the credibility came from the letters, right? PhD, like you had a PhD in evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, whatever it may be, the PhD gave you the credibility. But obviously, you know, as we know how the PhD programs work and all the issues with modern higher education, a lot of people now question just because you have a PhD doesn't mean that you're intellectual and you're 100% right. There's tons of people who are who have PhDs who may not be the most intelligent most intelligent. I think it's disrespectful to say they're not intelligent, right? But not be the most intelligent person in their field. But in the modern era, right, credibility comes from followers. People see an account with uh, 500,000 followers and they may look at a Rob Henderson page that only has 100,000 and say, well, the 500,000 is more credible than 100,000 or the ones with yeah. a million, right? They see people on TikTok spouting their ideas and their pseudoscience. And they're like, well, Rob only has 100,000 um, subscribers or followers on, on, on TikTok or, or Twitter. And this guy has a million. He must be more intelligent than him. And so one, that's one of the challenges I, that I've noticed, especially when it comes to the delivery of information. Because when you're doing your due diligence as an academic, there is a level of rigor and there's a level of lack of sizzle that comes with the information. The information mm -hmm. may not always be as sensational as you would want it to be, right? But what I've realized in the social media generation, like headlines lead, right? Sensationalism leads. So the, the, the studies that you will talk about, these ideas people will talk about are usually the ideas that stimulate the palace of the individual who's listening. 
And so mm. a lot of times the, the, the biases are, are even more apparent in a lot of these influencer, um, you know, psychologists, pseudo psychologists and versus the traditional guys, in my personal opinion. Yeah, that was yeah, that was well put. I mean, this that's definitely the case that yeah, when when academics and scientists and scholars try to communicate ideas, especially amongst each other, and even when they communicate to, to journalists who are writing for so you know for some popular uh, media outlet, they they tend to be very careful in their language. You know, it, because you know science is an ever evolving field, and what's true today, you know, we may have a new development or breakthrough or theory tomorrow. And so you, you know, if you if you're a careful person, you know, in studying studying something, you want to be sort of uh, subtle, and you want to be uh, aware that you know this is not the be all and end all truth, and things may sort of change tomorrow. Uh, but but journalists and and, and people who and, and and you know to an even greater degree, people who are trying to accrue followers on social media, you know, they will say you know very provocative or controversial direct statements with no nuance whatsoever, because that will get the likes or the followers, the clicks, the retweets. I mean, you know, and, and negativity is very, uh, uh, has a, it's more likely to go viral too. So there was a study a few years ago on Twitter, uh, in which these researchers tried to predict um, which tweets were most likely to go viral. And they found that, you know, for, for each additional, so, so they have these, this list of words called moral emotional words. And for each additional word you had in a tweet, it increased the likelihood of that tweet being retweeted by 20%. And most of these words were negative words like attack, blame, bad, kill, hate. And there were like some words that could be construed as positive. There was a word like care. Care predicted um, increased retweet. But, you know, the, the researchers, they, they noted that this word care, um, it could be used in a negative way. Like, uh, you know, uh, this politician doesn't care about people like me or something like mm -hmm. that. Right. Like that can be yeah. tr twisted into something negative. Uh, and so, yeah, there's uh, there's definitely this this mismatch between, you know, the people who are actually studying and going deep into a field. They're the most nuanced and least likely to be listened to. And the people who maybe like take some ideas that are extremely provocative and share them, they're the ones who are going to get the most likes and the most shares and, you know, the most likely to go viral. And yeah, I, I'm not sure what, uh, you know, what, what, like if there's a way to resolve that, that sort of conflict. Uh, but yes, yeah, some things that, that people are, are doing, especially younger scholars, they are becoming more involved in social media and trying to, trying to reach more people. Yeah. So how deep down the rabbit hole do you get when it comes to men's content? I get pretty deep as far as the academic research goes, but I, I am like somewhat aware now because I guess there has been this sort of overlap more and more, um, because I'm active online too, you know, I have a, a, you know, at least for an academic, a relatively popular Twitter account and Substack. And so I get, you know, uh, young guys sharing articles with me, commenting on my posts, emailing me. So I'm aware of like the red pill, purple pill, like this kind of stuff, pickup artist, you know, so I'm aware of like, you know, outside of the academic realm that there are a lot of young guys who are struggling, trying to find answers. I listen to podcasts, I listen to your podcast, you know, uh, other podcasts too. And I, I understand that like young guys are trying to find answers and, um, but that's like not, of course, like my, my, main, my main area of interest is like in, you know, academic work, trying to read the papers. Like I read a lot of David Buss's stuff, uh, you know, a, a bunch of other evolutionary psychologists trying to understand 
uh, male psychology from a, a more academic perspective, but I, I do, you know, pay, pay attention to what's going on outside of, outside of that, that world too. So in regards to the red pill, what, what has been some of your observations from afar as an academic who's been learning about the movement and just been researching it in your personal opinion? I mean, a lot of it seems like, uh, like from, uh, I guess like to take a step back, like a sort of a meta perspective, it to me is very consistent with um, like sexual conflict theory of like on average uh, each sex uh, has sort of different interests and you know part of part of the reason why uh, they have different interests is because of the differential costs like reproductive costs of pregnancy and so women are always trying to be sort of extra careful of the kind of men that they're uh, partnering with and. You know, uh, less sort of interested in on average casual sex and those kinds of things. And men tend to be more interested because they have a much lower cost for reproduction. Um, and so generally speaking, men are the, because of, because of this sort of uh, reproductive mismatch, men are the ones who are trying to attract the women, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's this, uh, there's this sort of uh, bumper sticker phrase that uh, eggs are expensive and sperm is cheap. And so it's the guys who are trying to do their best to, you know, look good, get good jobs, uh, you know, make money, uh, increase their status, acquire more resources, and do everything they, they can. And of course, women do this too, right? Women try to look good and all those things too. But in terms of uh, who's working harder, who's the one who actually has to go out there, make the first move, ask the person out on a date, and, you know, sort of uh, put in that upfront investment, usually it's the guys. And so when I see these red pill communities or like, guys posting on Reddit and stuff, a lot of it to me just seems like either one guy's sort of sharing tips and strategies about like how to appeal to the opposite sex, uh, or like they're not doing so well, and they're sort of lamenting their lack of success and venting their frustrations and so forth. But, you know, all of this is part of that sort of age old, old evolutionary psychology contest of, you know, guys, uh, you know, guys have to compete to to impress women. Not not every guy is equally attractive, equally handsome, kind, generous, wealthy, and so on. And on average, women are going to want the guys who are, are, you know, doing well in all these different domains. And so guys are going to be the ones sort of competing to, to fulfill those 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 needs. And sadly, a lot of guys, are, especially when you're young, they fall short. Um, and I've noticed that like, young guys tend to and you, you and I can talk more deeply about this too, but I think a lot of young guys sort of mistake their current situation as be as as this is how it's always going to be, right? When you're 19, like almost every single 19 year old guy is a loser. Like that's just that's just the reality. And like I think a lot of young guys, and I was like this too. Like I remember being like depressed, you know, on a military base when I was 19. Like it was just me and all like my other like loser friends drinking cheap beer. Like <laughs> girls don't like we, you know. Well, first of all, it's all guys anyway. And like, we couldn't go to bars, like girls. And I remember just thinking like, is this my life now? Like, am I never going to get a girlfriend? Like it just feeling so sad. And I think a lot of young guys are like that, right? They're 19. They don't really, they're not making much money. They're not very educated. They're not very successful in their careers. And they, they just uh, sort of overlearn from their current situation and think like, oh, this is my life now. And it's, it's, things change, man. Like as long as you sort of, you know, keep your focus and concentrate, things can change. Hundred percent. We'll definitely get into that as well. So now, I think I think your over your overview was really interesting, and and I'm going to share some of my ideas. I want to bounce them off you, and everything that I say, I want you to personally research it, right? I want you to do your research and to be able to see, like, you know, because everyone has their own biases, but I I I just want to bounce these ideas with you. So, um, 
Similar to you, I agree that the from from uh, that ten thousand feet, thirty thousand foot away view of red pill type content, it seems to be like you said the we call it a conflict make conflict strategy. Yeah, sexual conflict, Sex, sexual conflict. Yeah, and yeah. so it see it seems to be this um, layman's analysis of different things that you know evolutionary biologists and people in academic community know about not only human mating, but this is mating across most mammals, right? These are, you know, the, the competitive nature is just true amongst a lot of mammalian species as well as with different birds and reptiles as well. Um, but, but what's interesting that I've, I've seen is now that the individuals who are analyzing this information, they now extrapolate the information and then apply their own they apply their own personal opinions and ideological ideological bent to now communicate this to the people so like imagine like uh your one of your studies is this this box right let's say like this plato right so your study is this plato the guy will then take the plato which is the study manipulate it based upon how he views it and then now communicates it and disseminates it to the people. And so what I've seen is that they take a lot of these studies, but then they use the studies to reinforce negativity, nihilism and resentment in the lives of men today and to, and to further um, perpetuate a lot of that 19 year old animosity Right. Um, which is a real emotional feeling when you're when you're at the bottom of the social hierarchy and you can't mate. Right. They use that to to perpetuate this this 19 year old animosity to then attract more people, because to your point, you said at the beginning was negativity sells. Right. Like the, the story of the evolutionary biology story of, well, OK, at 19, it is really rough and it's difficult. But if you, you continue to build yourself up as a man, you continue to improve 30, 35, 40 is thousand times better right but but what sells isn't the 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 greener pastures tomorrow what sells is the is the is a bleak you know the, the wasteland today and so what i've seen is that a lot of their the a lot of this content now uses and kind of manipulates a lot of the the studies that may or may not be um extrapolated from, from primary sources to now kind of share this more nihilistic negative bent on female nature as well as with some of the different dating dynamics that are going on in today's world yeah yeah that is interesting yeah so so these i yeah so so some guys are um like like the sort of the incel idea i mean i don't know that much about it i i uh, i think you you had a, a guy on here uh, william costello, yeah, william costello. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah 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 he's great i've i've seen his research on this and it's really interesting um and it does seem like some of these, you know, people will um, like weaponize their resentment, right? Like they'll they'll read some papers and extract something. And and sadly, like I've I've seen this happen. Like you know, I'll, I'll tweet a paper uh, indicating, for example, like oh, on average, women like men who are taller. And then I'll get these really sort of nasty comments about like oh, it's it's over for the short guys or like 
you know, these very like dark memes about, you know, how, you know, you're just, you're just never going to make it right. Like you're never going to make, you're not going to make it that kind of thing. And it's, it's really, uh, it's really sad. And I, sometimes yeah, I find myself occasionally second guessing like, okay, so there's this paper, it's really interesting and it's based on empirical research. But if I tweet it, like, now these guys are going to use this. Uh, I usually just tweet it anyway, just because like, this is the truth. This is the facts, but yeah. people can do with it what they like, but there is something there where people will use the research to, uh, you know, promote some kind of twisted agenda. Uh, and I think a lot of it is probably due to misunderstanding of research too, where so much of the statistical analyses and the findings and the research, they're all based on averages, right? Like, yes, on average, maybe, uh, you know, women prefer men who are like this, but that doesn't mean that if you don't have that thing, you're never going to get a girlfriend. Like those are two different things. Like, yes, there's a, there's a correlation is statistically significant, but it doesn't mean, you know, and like, a lot of these guys who think oh, you'll never get a girlfriend or you have to do X, Y, Z and you're, you know, you're not good looking enough or tall enough or something, but something like, you know, 60, 70% of young men are actually in relationships and that 60 or 70% of men, most of them are like pretty regular guys, right? Like they're not all billionaire, you know, rock star, you know, movie stars or something. These are just like regular dudes who are doing their best to, to, to improve in their lives, just like anyone else. Uh, and so I think that's also important to keep in mind. Yeah. Like the, if, if, if there's a study and it has a, it reaches a specific conclusion, there's a finding, these are based on averages. You shouldn't, um, try to extrapolate from that, that this is the sort of permanent and enduring truth forever. And that means it's over for everyone else. Uh, there are plenty of people who, you know, are not, uh, who, who sort of break that trend, right? Like that's, that's just how like, it's just a, a lot of it is based on, on misinterpretation of, of these findings. And there's, there's also a lot of research that's, you know, uplifting and interesting as well that can inspire, motivate people. But perhaps like you're saying, right, like those, those kind of findings may are, are just like less likely to go viral or, or, you know, I, I've had times where I've, I've shared something with a positive message and people will, will still try to like find holes in it or overturn it because they, some people are just very committed, I think, to not wanting to improve their lives. And that's something that I, I, I can't understand. No. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing that I've noticed in the culture of men is that raise that rise in nihilism. And I, and I personally attribute it to a lot of these unhealthy red pill adjacent or red pill type content creators who, in my opinion, like I said, what, 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 what they're doing is that in the, in the era of the internet, I love the point that you brought up initially negativity sells, hmm. negativity sells. And what happens is that like, if, if, if Rob Henderson wants to write a paper, he has to do his research, right? And then this paper gets reviewed, right, by two people in the board or whatever it may be. Regardless of what we say about those people who are reviewing and the, and the peers who are reviewing his paper, right, there's at least somebody who's, uh, who's somewhat objectively trying to analyze and make sure what's being communicated is the most healthy and consistent manner. And a lot of times, even the way it's, 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 it's cut up and projected out to the general public that that th those scholarly articles aren't meant to do millions upon millions of views. Mm -hmm. So these other guys, when they're studying and, 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 and researching from, you know, tertiary sources, not even primary sources, right? What they then do is that there's now this financial incentive to, okay, like in the academic community, right? The, the, the incentive is 
Get your articles published. That's the incentive. Once the more published articles you have, the more respectable you are as academic, right? Mm -hmm. But in this community, the, the incentive is views, subscribers, right? And so now the, the 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 individuals who are now cultivating these content and analyzing these studies, they're using it to optimize it for the maximum amount of views. So right. like, and I, and, I, and I love your point about about misinterpretation, right? Like they're 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 clear they're taking these um, these studies, having false extrapolations, and misinterpreting it. But to the layman who doesn't even know where the study even came from to begin with. They just simply listen to their scholars the way we will listen to our professor and think everything that they say is gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great point. And they, yeah, they, it's like so much of the misinterpretation. I think you know people with agendas trying to find tidbits to fulfill their confirmation bias. There was a there's a psychologist uh, uh, Thomas Gilovich who he made this distinction uh, between can versus must. And basically, the idea here is that if you want to believe something, so you read something and you want to believe it, people sort of implicitly ask themselves, can I believe it? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, there you go. You just had your confirmation bias fulfilled. But when people read something or learn something and they and they don't want to believe it, they ask themselves implicitly, they ask, must I believe it? Do I have to mm. believe it? And oftentimes the answer is no, and then they can just reject it. Right. And people do this a lot, I think, with, with scientific studies where, you know, they already have this sort of preconceived notion. They have this prior in their mind about how the world is or how they want it to be uh, and the message that they want to, you know, the message or agenda they want to promote. And then they read something that, you know, is, is consistent with it. And they think like, well, can I believe this? Well, yes, yes, it fits with my preexisting worldview. So here you go. And if they read something that is at odds with it, they ask, well, do I have to believe it? Must I believe it? Well, you know, and then they start sort of trying to pick it apart or, you know, find flaws in it, find holes in it or, or find how it is inconsistent with something else that they had read somewhere else. And then they think, no, I, I don't have to believe this. I'm not going to accept it. So this is, um, yeah, this is something that I, I, I worry about and that people should people should be just i think more more careful about sort of recognizing this in themselves too i mean i'm i'm just as susceptible to it as anyone else to sort of, of course, step back of and understand that you know we all have our own sort of priors and our own beliefs about the world and it's true that just because you read one study that doesn't necessarily mean that like this is you know this is the foolproof forever objective finding but it should to, to some degree especially if it's you know if it's a well-done study it should shift your priors to some degree one way or the other uh, and people should, I think, sort of cling less tightly to their pre-existing notions. Yo, what's good, everybody? We're going to take a quick pause from this week's amazing episode to talk to you guys about our amazing sponsors over at Skillshare. Guys, Skillshare is a real A1 day one from the roommates, and we absolutely love Skillshare because they are a unique online learning community where men and women can learn all types of creative and entrepreneurial skills. Man, so many men for the past years and the roommates have been learning, have been blossoming, have been transforming from Skillshare because not only do you get the first month free to test it out, but Skillshare has such a vast library of courses, of resources that you guys can be able to tap into today. Go to Skillshare.com slash roommates and take advantage of this opportunity. Guys, on the podcast, we meet so many amazing men and women who are so talented, but they didn't get their skills overnight. They had to master these things and Skillshare gives 
gives you all the resources that you can be able to master your best self and tap into your full potential. So do not delay. Get on Skillshare today. Go to Skillshare.com slash roommates. Trust me, you'll thank us later. And let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, because I think for me, um, where, where do you primarily um, read, read most of your scholarly articles from? I mean, believe it or not, so Twitter is actually pretty good. So I follow a ton of professors and academics on Twitter. Uh, I go to Google Scholar too. I mean, I, I go through textbooks and you know, a lot of a lot of uh, the papers that you read. You know, well, the, I mean, this is like just how the academic game works. If you read a paper, there's you know just filled with uh, with citations. And so then I fall into the citations and then I read those papers and then I track those citations. And eventually, like, there's this picture for me that emerges. This is kind of how I do it. It's, you know, it's a little bit messy, but, you know, then I find uh, that someone has. Uh, so then I'll Google someone if they've written maybe two or three papers that I find super interesting. I'll Google them, go to their academic page and just look up their scholarly record and then just download all of their papers and that, that look interesting and come through them. And I'm sure people have like a more sort of organized and systematic way of doing it. But for me, that's kind of how I, how I do it. I just read papers, check the citations, start following interesting people. And Twitter's great too. If you find professors online, follow them, follow the people they follow. And that's sort of, for me, how I stay up to date with a lot of the latest research. Yeah. Now two things that you said, and I have two ideas in my, my brain. Hopefully I can put them together. The first thing I want to talk about citations. It's mm -hmm. so fascinating that there's, there's people out there and I'll, share a few of them with you off camera who have literally written books about, you know, pseudo evolutionary psychology and did not cite one person in the entire book. <laughs> Literally go to the back of the book, Rob, there's not one single citation in the book and thousands upon thousands of people read it. And in my brain, I'm like, yo, if you were in fifth grade, you couldn't like in most, in my, in a good fifth grade classroom, you couldn't even, you would get an F on that paper in fifth grade with a lack of citations. And so I love what you're talking about because people, what I know is people will go on different blogs and read an article and say, well, so-and-so blog said X, Y, and Z statistic is true. I'm like, what? well, where are the references, right? Where are the cross-references? Where are the cross-studies? Where, where are all these things that go on? People are not even looking at that. People will just, in the, one of the things that's always been, I've noticed it's been happening a lot of times, people always throw numbers. 40% of women this, 50% of men this, 30% of divorces. Like they're always throwing these numbers. And you're like, well, where did you get these numbers from? Because I know as a person who studies a lot of scholarly articles, a lot of this data isn't the most, a lot of this data is new. A lot of this data is really hard to find, especially if you don't know where to go. We can't just Google search some of this information. And also, like a lot of these, a lot of these studies have not been um, studied multiple times enough to be really considered a fact in the academic community, right? Yeah. But what people will do, they just throw these random statistics, and people just, oh, so and so said seventy percent of this is that, and they believe them. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I, why I wanted to know your thought process because I think that's one of the issues today. So what happens is so-and-so will watch a bunch of videos online and get all this information on all these studies from their, you know, pseudo-psychologists, and then now that creates their worldview. So when they hear anything else that you or an academic communicate, it's, um, must I believe this? And the answer is no, because so-and-so, so-and-so said X, Y, and Z is true. So I've I've noticed that a lot of people their their, their framework, their 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 psychological framework of what's going on in the modern era is built on so much pseudoscience that when they come into real scholars such as yourself, the the answer isn't can it's must. And if they should they believe it, 
they're probably not because they believe what that prior scholar told them. Yeah, that's a great point. I, and it's so funny. Like the, when you go through a process, sometimes you don't even recognize the the changes that that uh, occur. But I, you know, as we as you're speaking and and ideas are coming into mind, something that I just realized is that yeah, I'm I'm I've sort of been been uh, trained now through my 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 grad school experience to like where's the citation and then like dig through it. And then if and then I'll actually like download that citation to make sure it's true. And oftentimes I'll find that like they cited someone else. And like so so there's this. Are, are you allowed? Are we allowed to swear on your? Please, <laughs> on please, your please. Okay. Please. So there's this idea in evolutionary biology called the sneaky fucker theory. Uh, and the idea, maybe maybe you're familiar with it. You may have Gadsad popularized it. But yeah, this idea that uh, I, I think it started with with elephant seals was the original study that. You know, when like the big alpha elephant seal goes off, the the sort of the smaller, more diminutive, less you know, less attractive or something, these these smaller males will will mate with the the female elephant seals around them, and then the the big alpha will come back, and then the the beta males will kind of scurry away. And I'm like, this like why why is it called the sneaky fucker theory? Like, did someone really use this? Because to me, it sounds like some guy on YouTube talking shit. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. sound real. And so yeah, I actually yeah. went to Google Scholar. I, like, downloaded the paper and, like, found it. It was actually used in academic papers before. But, like, who was the original person to coin this? Like, who got away with putting this in an academic paper and yeah. getting it through peer review? And uh, I downloaded the original paper that everyone cites. And turns out I, could, I couldn't find it, right? Like, this sneaky mm. fucker theory was someone someone else said was cited in this original paper used it themselves and then everyone just cited the original paper trusting that this guy who said oh this this person in this paper said sneaky you know what i mean so there was this sort of there was this game that like people were just citing this paper and not checking their sources and so those kinds of things can even happen in the academic world i'm kind of I, I think i'm you know kind of glad i did because that, that term is really funny and i, and I think it's <laughs> you know now you have respectable scholars saying you know this theory uh but but yeah like this this could happen and so now anytime i hear you know because I, I watch youtube videos too of interesting people podcasters and stuff and if they cite um a study or if they uh discuss a statistic or a survey or you know 40 percent of women or men this that and the other and I'm like, okay, so where do they get that from? And I'll check like the the links in the bio, or I'll check, um, you know, if they cite a, a specific study or or a person, I'll I'll Google it. And oftentimes I don't find anything. And if that happens consistently with a with a YouTuber or podcaster, I just stop listening to them because I just think, well, this person, even if they're telling the truth, like you you just have to back it up, and you can't just like say pull numbers out of the air and say like this is how it is. You, you know, for me, I, I I can't trust you if you do that. Um, I need mm. to see what your sources are, which papers are you citing, what study, at least at least put up some links. So, I mean, that's something I do in my Substack. Anytime I cite a study, I, I link it back to the original academic paper or, you know, at, at least to, uh, you know, if I, if I read it in the New York Times or something, I'll at least cite that, you know, the article there. And if people are interested, they can continue. But I, I never just, like, make statements yeah. that, that I claim to be based on research and not provide a link to it. That, to me, is very uh, irresponsible. Yeah. No, and, and so I love what you brought up, and I, and I hope everybody listening to this episode takes what Rob said and applies it to their life. But that's exactly what I do. Like, I'm a numbers guy. Like, I, like whenever someone um, quotes a number, I always write it down, hmm. and I look it up myself. And like you said, about 85% of the time, this is all my personal experience, it's, it's not accurate, right? Because what happens is there's this, like you said, um, can I believe it? And the can comes from confirmation bias. If I feel like this is true, I don't look it up. So let's go political, right? Hmm. Um, you know, 75% of Republicans actually believe that women should not be allowed to vote. 
if you are a left-leaning person, oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, that's, oh yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that makes perfect sense, right? Like, that makes sense. You know, or let's, let's flip it, right? Um, 75% of Democrats actually hate their children. Oh, yeah, I'm, on, I'm on the right. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it probably makes sense because, you know, they, they abort them. Da, 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 right? So, yeah, so, yeah. so the confirmation bias allows you to be receptive of the information. But then on the flip side, I love your point. Then here's what happens with must. If the, if the statistic goes against your confirmation bias, then it's automatic rejection, right? It's, it's automatic rejection. So going back to if I'm a Republican, they say, you know, um, you know, 70, 75% of Republicans don't care about the poor. Of course not. That's not true. That's not true. That can never be true. Da, 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 da. Right. So, so you, 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 you easily receive what you, what, what confirms your biases and you easily reject what don't. So what I try to do is I say, I'm a human, so I'm naturally biased. It is what it is. We all are. But what I try to say is I say, okay, let me take that study. Don't receive it immediately. Don't reject it immediately, but analyze it. So I take it and I analyze it and then I come to my conclusions afterwards. And I believe that's one of the things that I've seen in today's world doesn't happen. And so a lot of young men, they watch all these content creators on the Internet. They're throwing all these numbers at them in this Blitzkirk fashion. And now they're receiving all these numbers. These numbers all become true. And they couldn't even cite a single article where that number originated from. Yeah. Yeah. They see some, yeah, some, some guy on TikTok or Twitter or YouTube who has, you know, X number of subscribers seem really popular. And they just assume that, oh, well, this guy says, you know, 50% of women like guys like this, and therefore, you know, it must be true. And it's really, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny, like, as we were talking about this, I'm thinking like, so there was there was this study uh, on on this sort of confirmation bias and this can versus must distinction. And the study it was really interesting. It's like I tell you, like, oh, you cite your sources. I can't remember the author of this paper, but you know, if you just type out the words that I'm using, you can probably find it. You Google it. But the, the study was it was really funny. So so they they brought these uh these these people into to a lab and they they filled up. I mean, basically the the, the researchers filled up this glass and it was just it was just water. And uh, and then they gave participants strips of paper and it was really just strips of paper and it was really just water. But they told these participants, uh, you know, if you if you insert this strip of paper into the water, I, I think it was something like, you know, like you know, put it in your mouth, add some saliva to it, put it in this water. Uh, and if it changes color, then uh, that means that. No, no, no. So in one one condition, they told them that that uh, if, if it doesn't change color, if it just remains the same, uh, then that means you don't have an illness and that you're safe and you're healthy and free to go. And uh, in another condition, they told them, you know, at, you know, put some saliva on this strip, put it in the in the glass. And if it stays the same and it doesn't change color, then that means you're sick. And that you, you you may potentially have like a serious illness, and so as you can imagine, in the first condition, you know they did this thing with the, the saliva, they put the strip, and the, then they waited a certain you know the amount of time the researchers told them to wait. They're like, oh, it didn't change. Okay, good, good enough for me, and off they went, right? Because they got the confirmation bias that oh, I'm a healthy person, good, I'm on my you know can go on my way. In the other condition, uh, of course, they they put the piece of paper in the water, nothing happened, and guess what they did next? They put another piece of paper in the water. And then another and another because they're trying to find the result that they want, right? Yeah, yeah. They they have this. You know, I I I must be healthy. I don't feel sick. Let me just let me let me try again. Let me try again, right? And so so they're seeking the the answer that they wanted all along. This uh, you know must yeah. must I believe it? No, I I mustn't. Let me try again. And uh, and so I think these kind of studies are really clever at at sort of getting at you know how how humans can kind of we we deceive ourselves in this way and we have these these sort of notions that we want you know we want it we want to confirm them. 
So yeah, and, and of course it, it carries over, as you're saying, into the sort of this this uh, this space where you know people are are you know they 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 sell negativity as a form of merchandise, as a form of attracting followers. Maybe they're I guess yeah. Now they're writing you know in, in the era of self publishing, you can write a book and get it published on Amazon or or something, some other sort of self self publishing press. And if you have a big enough following online, you can actually make a, a decent living as an influencer selling uh, uh, negativity and and information that is sort of nihilistic and bleak and doesn't really help. I mean, th th that to me is like, I, I think we're sort of reaching a point now, at least from my view, I, I talked to quite a, quite a few young guys and I think a lot of them are actually sick of the negativity. Like they don't like it. It's, it's, they actually like the sort of positive upbeat messages. And I think there's a, there's a demand for it. You know, yeah. people who, who are actually selling a, a positive message that you can, you can change your life and that it doesn't, you know, you don't have to sort of be mired in, in pessimism and cynicism all the time. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. And, and, and something else that I've been, you know, as a, and I want to clarify, see, the difference between me and everybody else is I'll tell you I'm a pseudo-psychologist. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll tell you I'm an opinion guy. I'm not a Rob Anderson, my Dr. Peterson. One day, hopefully, if I can get my butt to school, I will be on that level. But I am a guy like to um, share my opinions from, from and learn from smart men like Rob and then ex extrapolate what I believe is best for the betterment of humanity. So one of the things that I've been studying recently, Rob, is I've been, for not recently, for a long time, is marriage. Um, mm. and, I, and, I, and I've seen that in today's world of the internet, there's a lot of cynicism and negativity from about marriage, especially from that more dark nihilistic side of, um, of the internet. And I was really excited when Dr. Peterson did this three part series on marriage, thought it was brilliant, thought it was so great. Um, but I've seen a lot of cynicism and negativity in regards to it. And a lot of people, they, they quote the numbers, right? to justify why marriage is a bad idea for men. And what I found when I personally have done the research on a lot of the numbers that people have quoted from divorce rates and things along those lines, you know, um, you know, um, um, alimony, you know, losing half X, Y, and Z, like a lot of these statistics don't correlate and, 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 and they're, and they're actually creating a false paradigm in the, men, in the, in the eyes of men. So there's a few statistics that I, I want to run by you. And I want to, I want to, obviously Rob was not prepared for this. So, so he's not, <laughs> you know, so I want you guys to say, oh, Rob didn't know this. Rob didn't know this. He wasn't prepared. I just, as we were talking, I just thought about this conversation, but I, I want to run it by you. If you've heard anything about this number and whether or not this is factually accurate. So the first thing is in regards to the divorce rate, right? The most common Thing that's perpetuated online and unfortunately some scholars as well is the divorce rate is 50 percent and what i've researched and like i said this is where i part i wonder if you you've researched heard, seen this as well but what i've researched is the divorce rate skyrocketed from the you know the 50s utopian um era to the 1950s 1970s and it was skyrocketed because of the technolo technological shock that came from um birth control as well as no-fault divorce and so the divorce rate skyrocketed from there. I think it kind of bounced itself out into the 80s. But then since then, the divorce rate has been dropping from that initial 50% that people are always quoting from the APA. That was a really old statistic. So in your opinion, have you heard anything about what 
have you have you heard that the divorce rate is 50% or have you heard that the divorce rate was 150% and it has been decreasing over the years from in your academic communities? Yeah, well well I I mean I just read an article in Time uh fairly recently and it reported that the divorce rate has declined to 39%, right? So that's you know that's that's a considerable drop from 50%. You know, it's still, I mean, still fairly high. That's, you know, four in 10 uh, marriages and divorce. But, you know, there, and, and the reasons for that are, are, are potentially interesting. I mean, one possibility is that fewer people are getting married in general, and the ones who are tend to be more committed, right? I mean, in the past, historically, like when you were expected to get married, and it was a sort of a cultural norm, and there was all this pressure around you, a lot of people would get married, but then with the sudden introduction of no-fault divorce and, you know, the ease with which people could separate, then, yeah, it would make sense that, like, you know, one in two people, maybe they felt pressured or maybe they didn't want to or they just didn't want to work it out or what have you. Maybe they were too young, so they get a divorce on the spot. But now that as as marriage has sort of fallen out of favor and fewer and fewer people are getting married, and then the ones who are getting married tend to be uh, more educated they tend to earn more money. They tend to be sort of older, more set in their lives. Those kinds of people who are getting married nowadays are, are just generally less likely to get divorced anyway. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind uh, is if you break down the divorce rates by education level. So for college-educated people, the divorce rate hovers around 8 to 10%. Uh, this is specifically for college-educated women, but college-educated women you know, overwhelmingly marry college-educated men. Women tend to like men who are at least as educated as themselves or earn at least as much as themselves. So college-educated women, divorce rate is 8 to 10%, you know, pretty good odds, I think. And for women who are, whose highest level of education is a high school diploma, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60 to 70%. So there's this huge disparity. So like, yeah, you have this sort of snapshot statistic of 39% overall in the aggregate, but I think it's also important to sort of narrow that down, look at your individual um, okay. uh, characteristics, right? Like, well, you know, me and my uh, you know, partner uh, have, you know, this kind of education, this kind of job, do we have stable careers, do we, and so on and so on. And often what you'll find is if you sort of like narrow in and zoom down based on those uh, those, those characteristics, you'll find that actually, you know, your, your divorce rate will be like pretty low. I, I was talking to a friend uh, a while back and he was telling me, you know, so so he has a master's degree and pretty much all of his friends have master's degrees, too. And they were talking about this very subject and they were saying, like, yeah, they're all in their like mid late 30s. And some of them have been married for, for quite a while. And they were like, you know, it's weird. Like, I, I've heard this like divorce statistic is 50 percent, 50 percent of marriages and divorce. How come none of us are divorced? And my friend who who knows some of these statistics and he was like, that's because we're all like super educated, educated people like very rarely yeah. get divorced. Um, yeah. And you know we can we can yeah go into the reasons for some for for why that might be, but th I think those those two things are important to keep in mind. So yeah, this the divorce rate appears to have have diminished considerably, and then also yeah. uh, to keep in mind your uh, individual context and situation, rather than yeah. just thinking like oh a divorce rate fifty percent flip a coin you might get divorced. That's that's yeah. that's not that may not be true for your specific situation, right? I love that, Rob. And let's 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 break that down. Let's let's hopefully I remembered everything that you said. You just said so many amazing things. The first thing is the fifty percent, right? So going back to the problem that I have with the internet, especially a lot of this unhealthy male content, is that they're all quoting fifty percent. They're all quoting it. 
every last person is talking about 50% this, 50% that. And they use subjective reasoning to explain why 50%. Look what happened to Tom Brady. Look what happened to Tiger Woods. Look what happened to Michael Jordan's first man. Like they use subjective reasoning. Remember I told you, so it, it leads into the confirmation bias. Oh, yeah, Tom Brady did get divorced. Oh, yeah, Michael Jordan did. And they use these celebrities, which are the worst, and we'll talk about that later, the worst people to really define divorce rates of, and they use them to justify their worldview. So the academic community, very similar to you, I've, I've seen anywhere between, like, like you said, like 38 to 40 and it's been a decrease, right? There's been a drastic decrease over the years. And, but the most important part that I want to talk about, which you so eloquently put, is that the divorce rate, the general divorce rate is irrelevant to specific individuals, right? Mm. Because the general to me is an average. They're taking that 18-year-old girl from West Virginia who married her cousin Billy Bob, and they're also using the intellectual, you know, man like a Rob Henderson who marries is also very intelligent um, and mostly healthy woman in in UK, right? So they're taking these people's numbers and they're creating a crude average, right? Mm. But what's fascinating before we even get to that is most people don't even know how they come to this number to begin with. Yeah. Most people don't even know, like, how did they come to thirty nine percent, forty percent, fifty percent? Most people don't know. And and from what I've gotten in the scholarly community, there's a lot of different people. The reason why the divorce rate differs because scholars also disagree with how to create the crude divorce rate, right? So it's not a unanimous uh, idea of what creates a divorce rate. But your point about specific individuals is, is great because I had a friend who was Asian-American who was like, I don't want to get married because divorce rate's about 50, 55%, whatever number he was throwing out there. And I was like, do you know Asian-Americans have the lowest divorce rates of all people, regardless of income level, regardless of, of education level? So you guys are not even remotely close to the 50%. So you're using this general number to, to now be applied to your specific life is, is, is to me, misleading to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I love that you brought it up. I don't think enough men realize that because my rule of thumb is, yeah, take all the variables. Like you said, there's a myriad of variables. One variable, education. Second variable, income level. Third variable, shared political worldview. Fourth variable, what is the state of your, your parents um, and, and marriage? Third and fifth variable is religious um, beliefs. What do you guys both believe? There's so many variables that contribute to the percentage. But like I said, these false pseudoscientists will take this general number apply it to everybody else and dissuade people where like you said for especially college educated people it's actually a pretty stable institution yeah 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 that's that's exactly right and and oftentimes i think for young guys uh and, and this may or probably isn't true for your friend but 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 for for a lot of young guys i think they they don't want to get married and they use the statistics to back up what they wanted all along right like they never wanted to get married uh for whatever reason uh whatever feelings they have about relationships or women or their odds of you know finding a wife or something and then they just think like oh well this oh good there's this statistic here that says 50 percent. so you know that's that's the reason why that's the reason why i don't want to get married not because you know of my own uh, you know, personal concerns or fears or or what have you. I think like a lot of people are, you know, they start with the preference and then search for information that makes them sound reasonable and back it up, back up those those sort of claims or those preferences. 
And yeah, it's uh, it, 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 yeah, those are all great points too about like even how how are these things measured? Uh, keeping in mind, yeah, those sort of individual level variables that are that that can predict the likelihood of of marriage and divorce, and yeah, I mean, those things that you that you you noted. Uh, it's funny, like I I saw this study on on personality. Uh, personality traits and whether they predicted uh, uh, happiness in a, in a marriage. And they were actually uh, uh, shockingly small. So it was personality traits, physical traits. And and so we'll start with those two. And they were actually shockingly small. Like, I, I think that the correlations for, for the personality traits, like basically how, how, uh, how strongly correlated are you with your spouse on agreeableness and openness and conscientiousness and all those kinds of things has very weak predictive power for whether you're, you're happy in a relationship. Uh, there were slightly stronger uh, uh, correlations for height and weight. So, you know, if, if you're a relatively tall person, people tend to be slightly more satisfied if they're also with someone who's also kind of tall too. Uh, and, and I would imagine that it's it, that, 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 that preference is probably stronger for women than for men. Uh, but, but the, 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 the variable that had the strongest correlation for relationship satisfaction between men and women for their relationships was actually, uh, at least in this study, political orientation. And it was like extremely high, like by social science standards, it was like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, which is, which is really high. It's like, if you want to be happy in your relationship, it's really important that you, I mean, basically I think political orientation in this study was, uh, I interpreted it really as a, as a sort of a measure of, of values, Right. Like, yeah, do you two share the sort of same principles, the same worldview, the same priorities in your life? And, you know, I'm sure that if, you know, like they, they did look at, at religious belief here, but I'm sure religion would have been just as strong or stronger. Uh, and that is like one of those things, like if you're a religious person, having someone who shares your, your religious beliefs, too. Right. And and so that to me is, is shocking. Right. Because we pay a lot of attention to like our physicality. Right. Like how someone looks, how tall, how much do they weigh, how their body looks and so on. But I think uh, often we, we overlook like how how much overlap is there between you and the other person in terms of your worldview your principles your uh your values yeah um i'm a quota study but i want to preface with i don't know the primary source i know the secondary source secondary source is somebody who was very credible in my book but i, I advise you guys to look it up yourself um, Pastor Mark, just one of my favorite pastors um, in Scottsdale, Arizona, wrote a book a couple of years ago called Real Marriage. And there was a study that he analyzed because what, what, what is communicated in most Christian circles is the Christian divorce rate is the same as the non-Christian divorce rate. So religion, religious beliefs don't really contribute to a happier marriage. So they would say, let's just throw a number. Let's say the crude divorce rate is 50% and the Christian one was 49 or 48, right? Basically the same. And what Pastor Mark realized, he said, in actuality, a better study analyzed, okay, what actually entails your Christianity or your religion, right? Anybody can say they're Jewish, but you, we all know there's practicing Jewish people and there's, you know, um, ethnically Jewish people. You know, there are culturally Christians in America and there's cultural Muslims in America and there's practicing Christians and Muslims. So when they analyze the variables of are you actively practicing your religion, right, whether it's, you know, reading your holy books, you know, going to a, a place of worship, you know, um, you know, giving to the poor, like in couples that are actively practicing the religion. And I'm and I'm and I'm paraphrasing. I don't know the exact number. The divorce rate was probably like two or three percent. It was just it was just so it was just so small. And so I love that you brought that up because people don't realize that. And it's fascinating because what I've seen is that, like, I always look at life as a number line, positive five, negative five, zero, right? That's how I look at life. 
So on the far left, I think about like the most extreme female idea as feminism, right? Mm-hmm. And the far right, I think about the most extreme male ideas as like incel, black pill types, adjacent stuff, modern red pill-ish adjacent stuff. So what's interesting is that like when you hear a feminist talk about the wage gap, right? Like and say, well, women earn 70% of the dollar on men and then you quote whatever studies it is. We're like, well, in actuality, right? Everybody nowadays knows there's nuance to the study. The variables are you have to take into factor is that when you actually look at women in the same job fields of the same ages and all different variables, they actually earn the same as men. But they don't want to hear that nuance. They don't want to hear the nuance to that study. They just want to hear that women earn less than men because the patriarchy is holding us down, right? And then on the flip side, in the men's world, the, the, the divorce, the, the, the marriage and divorce, right? They're like, well, marriage is 50% of marriage and then the divorce is no, it's a flip of a coin, no point of it. Well, in actuality, it depends on the individual, different factors. They don't want to hear that as well. So I found that interesting on both sides that, like you said, the data is subjective based upon your confirmation bias. And then another point I want to, I want to hear your opinion upon is that one of the other attacks on, and criticisms of marriage is that, you know, the idea of men getting divorced and then losing half their money. But what I saw from the studies that I was researching, I'm curious if you found this to be true as well, is that the, the more a man earns, the less the, the, the divorce rate is. And the less a man earns, the higher the divorce rate is. So, so the idea that women are divorcing or marrying men to take their money and leave, statistically speaking, that's, fact, that's inaccurate. I'm curious if you saw similar patterns in your findings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've reviewed some of the the work on on marriage and divorce rates, and at least from from what I understand, that's exactly right. That you know, the people who are are well educated, who earn lots of money, who work you know, sort of occupationally prestigious jobs, you know, across the board, people who are just doing well in life tend to experience fewer divorces. Um, and and it's funny, right? Because I've I've actually shared this research with people before, and they'll they'll say things like, you know, and, and what you said before, it's funny. Like they'll they'll point to like these isolated examples of, well, what about Tom Brady? What about Tiger Woods? Like they'll they'll throw out, you know, uh, you know, so and so with you know some billionaire who's been divorced three times or something, and it's like, you know, we I mean, you could you play that game all day, but like, you know, that's that's because like oftentimes celebrity divorces you know those the, those headlines get clicks they get eyeballs right like you're not no one's gonna write an article saying you know a billionaire happily married for 35 years with his wife yeah. right but if they would they'd love to say like you know billionaire on his third divorce like and that's what sticks in people's minds right like there's tons of guys who are you know extremely successful athletes or celebrities and so on who have been happily married and we've never heard about them because you know no one's gonna click on the article about like why someone's marriage has been so sort of uh you know successful and quiet and not not at all sort of troublesome um so so yeah that's i mean that's that's a good point too is like sort of what are you not seeing and this is this is actually like a like a a a, a mental habit i've tried to adopt uh whenever i i hear any kind of statistic or finding or or just sort of an anecdotal observation is what are you not seeing right whether it's a person giving you a fact whether it's uh uh you know a, a media article or a clip or a headline trying to get you to to see something or pay attention to something is what am i not seeing here or what what could what could be a, a, a potential reason why this wouldn't be the case or you know what are the biases that may be involved here uh and, and so like for me this has helped me to to sort of think more clearly clearly in my life uh and, and so yeah just generally speaking right like that's 
the idea here that uh, I mean, what you what you brought up before about like this is really interesting to me that on on one side you have you know this sort of far left or feminist types who love using statistics for their own agenda, then you have these groups of of, of men doing the same thing, and neither one of them wants to hear any kind of nuance whatsoever, just promoting their worldview, taking snapshot statistics that you know, oftentimes may be sort of misconstrued or, or misunderstood in some way. And then they, they use this to justify their own, uh, you know, negativity toward the opposite sex is, uh, yeah, it's really something, right? And, 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 and this is why I'm glad. I'm glad that, like, there are people out there who are trying to, to help people to understand and to clarify the nuance. And, and it's funny, on the one hand, I have heard people um, explore the gender pay gap and try to understand the nuances and explore you know it's like once you control for various factors almost all of the gender gap in in pay goes away and i've heard fewer people talk about the divorce rate and how if you control for certain yeah. things or look at certain factors and you know individual level variables and so on a lot of a lot of that will will diminish as well uh but that is something to to think about i i think you know perhaps one reason <laughs> is that you know the, the gender pay gap that's that's just something that's this sort of like trendy and can get people energized and fired up and and like marriage and divorce and those kinds of things maybe they're just i don't know maybe they're less interesting maybe people have less motivation to explore them you know say for a handful of people like like jordan peterson who will talk about marriage in a, in a positive way yeah no i so let me tell you my theory to why it's so the the redditors they they go deep, <laughs> you know. They when you when they're fueled up, they will do research, they will dissect. You know, they, they, there's this charge of there's this analytical charge that men you can use to galvanize a group of men to really analyze that, right? Mm -hmm. So I I would argue that this is all feelings, no facts. I I'm very curious to who broke that story initially that the pay gap is not what you think it is. I wonder, cause I'm curious who an academic, who, who academia could have been able to publish that, 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 that journal, right? That article. Right. So I wonder if it was more, uh, a layman who was just so galvanized and charged up about, about this thing who then brought it to the, the societal ethos. Right. Um, yeah. so I, to your point, I think there's not enough energy from an individual, maybe I'm the one who's called to do it, you know what I mean, to to actually dive deeply and write an article and explain that nuanced perspective, because you're right, like, it's it's something that we clearly have seen it on that side, but why does no one ever talk about that when it comes to marriage? And so I think it's something that um, maybe something that I, I can undertake and, you know, have wise guys like you and William to help guide me to how to write that properly, but you're 100% right, because to me, I'm all about the best information getting out there. When it comes to studies and, 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 and data, like the, the purpose of it is to tell the truth, not to tell my truth, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever is the truth, I want that out, not my truth, whatever is the truth. But unfortunately, what happens is too many people have an agenda, and the agenda, in my opinion, is not leading to the flourishment of humanity. Going back to neo-Marxism, right? Like neo-Marxism, they want to tear down the structures, right? Like the neo-Marxist males want to tear down the marriage structure. The neo-Marxist women want to tear down the patriarchal structure. The neo-Marxist people in society want to tear down capitalism, right? They want to tear down the republic. Like the neo-Marxist wants to tear it down. So, so to me, I think it's important that the information that's given is given and given the truth but the truth should only build society up. 
Right, so yeah. the truth only makes society better. And I love Jordan Peterson's definition of the truth. The truth is the greatest good. Whatever is the greatest good is what wins over time. That's what's true, right? And so that's why I'm such a big fan of you and your work. And I want everybody to follow Rob. And, and when, you, when you hear studies, to go to Rob's articles and, to, and subscribe to Rob's Substack and, 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 share, and retweet Rob because we need men like you who are actually being as objective as possible, but at the end of the day, pushing society to a healthier, better place where men, women, and children can thrive and flourish. But unfortunately, I see a lot of these pseudoscientists, especially in that the red pill, dark side of the internet, I don't, I don't see them doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really see much of that going on either. And yeah, I mean, it's so, so as you're describing this, this sort of neo-Marxist idea, who you know, they wanna, they wanna topple the patriarchy. And they want to undermine marriage. And I'm thinking maybe this is this is perhaps a reason why there's a lot of focus and attention paid to the gender gap and not as much on on marriage. You know what I mean? Like the gender gap, that is a sort of a patriarchal like there's a patriarchal narrative around that that you can you can sort of promote and propagate and and explore. And, and then because of the amount of of uh, of interest and attention that gets, then you'll attract people who will try to explore it, explore the nuances, potentially debunk it and so on. But with marriage, um, you know, if, if the if the marriage rate is 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 decreasing, you know, like people who are sort of uh, adherents of neo-Marxism, like they, they you know they don't want to spread that message that, oh, actually, the divorce rate is declining and and that maybe you should pay more attention to these other kinds of variables that may be involved. Like it's just less interesting for people. But yeah. And then another thing here is I think that, you know, for for a lot of young people there. And, and I think the reason why, like red pill and this kind of stuff is so popular is that young people today get almost no formal guidance on relationships, but we're flooded endlessly with advice about professions and careers and education and so on, right? Like how to be a good, you know, this is like a somewhat cynical take, but like how to be like a good worker bee, right? Like, you know, check these boxes, get this education, sit in this desk and do this kind of schoolwork and go off and, and, and earn money and pay taxes and so on. But there's like very few people are are, are you know, teaching young people like, you know, here's how to have a healthy relationship with someone that you care about and trust and respect. And here's how to be intimate and it's OK to be vulnerable and all those kinds of things. Right. It's so. So instead, people are going to like dark corners of the Internet where, you know, people who, you know, there's there's this concept in, in psychology research, like adversarial sexual beliefs about like how, you know, the, like one of the items on this scale is like sex is like a game where one person wins and the other person loses. And people actually have this belief that like sex is this 100%. kind of game. And, you know, because a lot of a lot of young people, they're just they're just not taught to like how to model healthy relationships. And even, you know, single parenthood and all these kinds of things like these things have been on the rise for a long time. But even among young people who have like two who are raised by two parents and a sort of a healthy, stable, monogamous, you know, part pairing or something like even they like the, the parents seldom sit them down and say, like, here's how we did this. You know, like, I mean, it's, it's actually awkward. Like I've had this this experience before where I was at this cooking class with my girlfriend uh, a few months ago. We were in Italy. And it was me and her and a, and a bunch of other young couples. And there was one older couple with their kids there at this cooking class with us. They were, you know, they had gray hair. They were probably in their, like, you know, early to mid uh, 50s, maybe 60 years old. Uh, and the question that all of these young couples wanted to ask these two who had been married for, you know, 30 some years was like, how did you two do it? You know, yeah. like, and it was, it, it was, it was a, to, to me, it was a, it was an encouraging 
an inspiring moment to see these you know, like asking like that's the question they're at. they're not they're not asking them about like i don't know other you know, small talk or the weather or something it's like you two are married for 30 years how did you do this and they didn't really have an answer like they, you know they didn't really like they'd never sat down to think because very few people are just like how am i going to codify and and complexify and try to like communicate this thing that that i've managed to successfully do with this other person people usually don't think that way whereas with relationships and education and stuff it's like okay so I, I got this promotion and people will sometimes step back and think like how did i become professionally successful and how can i communicate this message to others that's a natural and normal thing to do but with relationships it's just harder to do that it doesn't come as naturally and young people are are, are, are uh you know they 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 really want this this information and they're seeking it and sometimes in in, in not so great places but but i'm hoping other people yeah. like you and others will will uh you know bring this bring a, a message of positivity to them Oh, Zephyr, are you familiar with um, Dr. John Gottman's work? Uh, I've I'm familiar with him, but I I don't I don't recall specifically the the work that he's he's done. Yeah, so Dr. Yeah. John Gottman is probably one of the leading experts when it comes to marriage. So he's he's somebody yeah. who his um you should look him up. Um, he's somebody he has a I think he has he has his own school. I forgot the name of the school. Gottman something, but basically he's quantified divorce rates by being able to predict up to 90% accuracy for the past 30 years, a couple's divorce rate. I mean, right. the couple gets divorced and he talks about the, the, the four horsemen of, of, um, of divorces. And I've have it written down. And so he's somebody who's really codified the process of like for the past 30 years, he's been studying this, this material in Seattle, um, I believe. And, and he's a great expert in the field. And and you're right. Like they, there's not enough people who are doing this. And are you familiar with the work that uh I forget her name at in Northwest University that has that relationship course? I, I yeah, I'm not familiar with with this. No. Oh man, I gotta look this up real quick. Um, so there's this lady in Northwest University who has a relationship course, one of the most popular relationship courses in the country. Let's see relationship course. I want to make sure. Oh, I find so she this. teaches a course. Okay, yeah. On I, relationships. I may, have, yeah. I may have read about this somewhere, but I, yeah. yeah I Doctor Alexandra Solomon. I'll share share with you. Teaches yeah, a course yeah. called Marriage One Hundred and One. <laughs> cool. So it's like one of the most popular courses in the university. It's not. It's the most popular course in the university by far. Super long waiting list, as well as um, she's one of the most popular relationship courses in the country. And she teaches at Northwestern, brilliant woman. You should check her out, check her workout as well. Brilliant woman. But I'm like, why is that not something that's in every college? Yeah. Like, why is that something not in every high school to be able to cultivate healthy relationship? Because what her, what, what she's doing um, is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. That, that actually just came, came to mind as you were describing what she's doing is like, why hasn't she put this on, on like a YouTube lecture series or a podcast or something yeah, to disseminate this out to, to other people or, or turn it into a book? But I think nowadays, I mean, books are books are useful, but I think more and more young people especially are consuming information through audiovisual means, through podcasts, YouTube and so on. And like to have that information available, I think would be would be huge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that you bring him up, yeah, now I remember Gottman. You know, his his uh, like one of the predictive predictors of divorce is like contempt and eye rolling yeah. and that yeah. kind of negativity towards your spouse. Um, yeah. But yeah, all of like th those kinds of uh, findings and this kind of research. I think it deserves to be more well known and, and even like as we're talking about like yeah I should probably write something about this because yeah. yeah there's all this stuff out there about yeah profession and career success and everything but 
you know, there's there's like throughout your life, like you know, two two sources of fulfillment ultimately. Yeah, your career and your your family, like those are really like those the, the two sort of biggest primary sources of meaning for so many people. And you know, a job is a job. I mean, most people uh there's only so much excitement and and pleasure you can get from your work whereas for family like that is something that you know can like it's it's more enduring it's it's you know just having having people around you who care about you in that in that way and, and starting something like that I, but but there's there's it's it's funny like that's probably a more important source of meaning but there's so much less guidance around I know, it I know. so I'm, it's I'm really uh, it's actually a puzzling right yeah, you yeah, know, it is. And that's why, like, I'm, I, I love what you do. I love what Dr. Peterson does. And I think we need more of this and we need more conversations like this, because like you said, like, this is the foundation of society. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is the foundation of society, men and women coming together, creating healthier and happier family and creating ha ha healthier, happier humans. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I really appreciate all that you've done. I really appreciate your conversation today. And uh, man, I just I just hope that more people can learn from men such as yourself. And, and I really believe you're going to be, you know, the next rock star of our generation. And I'll be proud to call you my friend, man. So just thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Hafiz. Great to be here. Thanks, man. No problem. Where can the people reach you at? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob K Henderson and uh, follow my Substack, stack, uh, Rob K Henderson .com. Love it. Love it. Guys, you know, we get down here, be sure to, um, Follow Rob on the um, Substack as well as on Twitter. Show him love. Let him know what about this podcast. Shout out to you. My name is Hafiz. I'm joined by Rob Henderson. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day.